The Bible passage for this morning is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, which you can find on page 1781 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. Hello, everyone. <clears throat> Sorry. If you've been coming to High Point for a while, you know that um, the reason we're doing this passage in Ephesians during the Advent or Christmas season is because it's just next for us. We've been going through Ephesians the whole year. If you're new, you might be thinking, Jesus the incarnate warrior year. Isn't that refreshingly militaristic? Um, the, part of the thing is like, I'm 42 now. And so this is like my 35th Christian Christmas. And I'm trying to keep it fresh, right? Like it, after a while, you know, this, the shepherds and the angels, you're just kind of like, okay, right? Now there's, there's a lot of good things to repetition and repeating the, 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 the choruses and the carols and the story of Christmas and so on is, those are good repetitions, but sometimes you also have to change up some of the stuff a little bit or people just think they've heard it all before. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, but you, so, you might think though, if, whether you've been here for a while or new, you might just be like, Jesus, or Nick, I'm not Jesus. I'm Nick. <laughs> and you, you'd be saying this to me, not Jesus. You'd be, you, you might say, Nick, but still, like, Jesus the incarnate warrior for, for, for Christmas, really? Because, like, Christmas is actually the time where we think of Jesus like the opposite. Jesus is, you know, the, like the Prince of Peace, right? Like, it literally, literally says when the angels appeared to the, to the shepherds, right? They said, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace on those, on those his favor rests. And then there's the, the famous passage that Handel put to music in Isaiah, which is about the birth of the Messiah in Isaiah 9. And he says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Right? In Matthew 5, Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he literally says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called, and the, the, literal, the literal words used is sons of God, right? We translate children now so that women can be included because somehow that would be intellectually hard if we said sons, right? But the reason why it says sons is because Jesus is the first and most direct son of God, the one and only son of God who is just like the Father, and he is himself a peacemaker, and therefore any human being who is like him in that peacemaking is also a son of God, or in that sense, a daughter of God, because they are like the Father. Does that make sense? Does it feel like I'm arguing against myself here? Okay. That's all true. That's all true. The, the, the thing is, so I went to a wedding last night that was um, uh, um, Femi, Femi and Cassandra, now Shokoya, right? Uh, Femi is of Nigerian descent, and they decided to do a full-out Nigerian food for this thing, okay? And so it was, it was fun watching Midwestern white people go through this fully Nigerian buffet 
and like picking and choosing what they wanted to try, you know, with like the like gelatinous cow tendon and tilapia heads and like, I mean, it was really fun. And, but you could tell people were like, I'll try, I'll try a little of that. Let's push that over here, right? And it's, it's perfectly normal for people to approach Jesus that way. Like everybody wants to approach Jesus like a buffet. You're not the only person who wants to approach Jesus like a buffet. And to just take the stuff about Jesus you like, like the little baby in the manger and the, the Prince of Peace and the blah, 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 and not want anything to do with Jesus the terrifying divine warrior. Like I, that's not, that's not weird, okay? But the, the problem is that Jesus is a lot of things. That doesn't mean he's whatever you want him to be. He is a lot of things, and he is all of those things, all of the time, to everyone. So Jesus is both the greatest man of peace the world has ever seen. He makes Mohandas Gandhi and Martin Luther King look like warmongers in comparison, okay? And he is the most terrifying warrior that has ever existed, and he makes General Patton and Sung Soo and Achilles and Alexander look like school children throwing snowballs. Okay, and he is both of those things at the exact same time. And if we actually read the Bible a little bit more closely and carefully, we would actually partly know that, right? So, for example, in, um, in Luke's gospel, um, the same gospel that tells the story about the angels coming and declaring peace on earth, Jesus literally says to people, he says, do you, actually, do you think I'm here to bring peace? I'm not here to bring peace. I'm here to bring division and a sword. In fact, I'm going to split families that were at peace against themselves, right? But the peace that the angels declared Jesus bringing and the peace that people want Jesus to bring are totally different, and that's what he's clarifying, right? And you can see this in the Isaiah passage as well. Like, we want—we love this part. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, right? And then he'll be the prince of peace. But look at the verses literally right before that. It says— you, this they're talking, speaking about God. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at harvest. That's a fun time when you pick everything you've worked all year for, right? And then the very next line. As warriors rejoice when dividing up the plunder. So when you win a battle and you've killed everyone, right? And you're taking everything that belonged to them, but now they're lifeless corpses. So what do they need it for? So you're going to take it all. It's a really happy moment, right? And he's like, it's like that. The deliverance of God is like that. Isn't it fantastic? He says, like, dividing up the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. You see, it's—in some ways, it's only people who live in a place like um, the United States who've never really had another nation that are a completely different people who wouldn't let you mix with them, who felt like you existed to work for their enrichment, right? It's only people who've never experienced that who could be like, I don't like all this fighting stuff. Listen, everybody who's ever been really oppressed loves the fighting stuff. And that's most of humanity. Most of humanity throughout the history of human beings have been oppressed. And so they love the fighting stuff. They love the idea that there will be a day like the day after Midian's defeat when the enemies of God are completely destroyed and they are finally free not to work to fill somebody else's stomach, not to bleed at somebody else's pleasure. Right? And he says, The shoulders are out of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What does that represent? That re represents the end of military conflict, that the fighting is over. Right? So, do you know what that is? Midian's defeat? Anybody know Midian's defeat? A couple of you guys? 
It's like three people. Okay. Midian, the, the, the battle against Midian is in the book of Judges. It's like the sixth book of the Bible. Seventh, seventh, seventh book of the Bible. And it's Gideon. It's the story of Gideon. Okay. And so Gideon um, is this guy who doesn't really want to fight, and he's afraid. He's the guy who puts the fleeces out, makes God like make the ground wet and the fleece dry, and the fleece wet and the ground dry. And like, that's not an act of faith. You're not supposed to do that. It just shows how much this guy does not want to do it. So like, if you're a young person and you're deciding who to marry, don't fleece God, okay? Or what you're gonna do for a living. Like, that's not a good example, all right? And so it just shows that Gideon does not want to lead God's people. And the Midianites are basically this group of a bunch of disparate tribes who've been brought together, and what they all agree on is they're gonna go kill the Israelites and take all their stuff. That's what they've all agreed on. And so they all come into this valley, and it says that they're like locusts. There's just so many of them. And so God leads Gideon only to take 300 people to the fight. All the Israelites come together, and they have to—all the people who are afraid go home, and then he has everybody drink out of the water, and the people who drink the weirdest way get to be in the army, and there's like only 350 of them. And they're going against this group of people that's like literally like the sand on the seashore, right? And so Gideon gives them all like a torch and a trumpet, and they basically surround them at night because the Midianites— have no reason to suspect Israel would attack them because they're massively outnumbered, right? So why would the Israelites attack them? That's just crazy. So Gideon gets all the people to surround them, and they all break the thing that the—and they light their torches all at once, and they blow their trumpets all at once. There's like 300 trumpets all around this valley, and all these lights all of a sudden light up. Now, the Midianites are not like a close group of people. They're a group of disparate tribes that all fall under Midianite, but they don't trust each other. They don't know each other, right? So they're all coming out of their tents in the middle of the night, sword in hand, no time to put on armor, running around. They hear trumpets. They see torches. They see scuffles. And all of a sudden, they, they start—they get—find some people they trust, and they start fighting some people they don't. And this whole group of people basically kill each other. And the Israelites never fight. They don't have to. God just fights for them in this very weird providence, right? And then— all of the fighting with the Midianites was over. And there was peace. And you see, this is the idea of the coming Messiah, that someday the Messiah will come in his final coming, and he will lay waste to all oppressors in a great war that he himself mitigates, and then war will be over. And then a government of final messianic peace will exist in which he will be the mighty God who is also the eternal Prince of Peace. And the extent of his government, that is the, ex- the reign of that peace, will never end. Right? Jesus is both the Prince of Peace, the one who brings peace to the earth, the one who brings peace, can bring peace to you in your life and all of the conflict that's within it. But, the, but you need to understand, the thing that makes him the Prince of Peace is the warrior. They're not—they're not like two sides of a coin. They're not opposites. It's not like a yin and a yang thing. Jesus makes himself the the man of peace by being the warrior. And it is by accepting the nature of Jesus as divine warrior to fight against the oppressions of sin and death and hell and devils that in that war he makes, he frees people— He frees consciences. He frees you from the debt of sin. He frees you from the penalty that you deserve. He frees you from the claim that hell has on your life. He frees you in his warrior role from all those things so that you can be free and at peace. Remember, salvation and deliverance are both war terms. Don't forget that. Now, 
one of the situations in which, because you could be like, you know, that's interesting, Nick, because I've read the, I've read some of the Gospels, and I don't see a lot of Jesus fighting. Like, it would make sense if Jesus is always hitting people with rocks and stuff or whatever, but he really doesn't. He like, he seems like a pretty, he's like a teacher, sage person. He heals people, right? He's not, he's not a warrior. Well, see, part of the thing is you got to get clear in your mind who Jesus is fighting. That's so important. Lloyd talked about this last week some, right? Where it says in the book of Ephesians, our, our, because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principality and powers and authorities in this dark world, right? So all of the gospel writers demonstrate very clearly that Jesus is a man of war. But in the main way that they do it is by demonstrating that he stands against Satan. And the main way he, they show that is all of the stories of him casting out demons, right? Because once you realize that the book of Isaiah says that king, the king Messiah would come and he would be a warrior in that he would, re, he would release people from their oppressions. There is nothing more exactly that than the oppressive nature of, devo- of demonic possession and the full freedom that is received when that is obliterated. And that hold is taken off of someone. They're fully free psychologically and physically to be everything God created them to be, and they are liberated. It's a salvation, and it's the salvation by which God in Christ is making war, right? Because, you see, one, one of the reasons we don't like that is because we want Jesus, or we want God, and some of us are more open about this, are more willing to admit this about ourselves. We want God to come and destroy our enemies that are physical enemies or social enemies or the things that we really feel like are holding our lives back. And most of us don't really believe that the things that are destroying us is demonic or devils or evil or something like that. We don't really believe that. And so what we believe is that those, the, the Democrats or the Republicans or the media or the university professors or the religious people or the, the people down the street from me or the, that person who cut me off or the person that talked bad about me at work or the, right, there's my spouse. I mean, like, my teenager, my, right? There's, there's eh, all these people that function to us that we feel as enemies and that's if we're really honest with ourselves, that's what we want God to handle, and God is not really interested in handling that, because those people are people he came to free. Those people aren't his enemies yet. It may be in the end that they will not be freed from their oppression, and that in not re- receiving that freedom from oppression, they become so composite with his real enemies, that they will be destroyed. That is possible, but that is not the work Jesus is doing as this warrior now. He's not that kind of warrior right now. Right now, his work is to take apart the forces of evil so that we are no longer part of them, so we can be redeemed. That's what he's doing. And if you see that in the Gospels, if you see him fighting hell, not people, every action he does makes sense. And every action can be seen as the action of a warrior. And a peacemaker. And a peacemaker. Right? Now, this, the story of the, of the Gerson demoniac is, is, one of the, is one of the great ones because he comes across the Sea of Galilee. He gets to this place that's basically a deserted region where people are buried. And there is this guy there who is, like, certifiably insane. I mean, he, like— 
there are special places for people like this. Apparently the desert with tombs, right? And they've, they've tried to help this guy by chaining him up. And he can break chains and throw people off. And nobody—it literally says in the passage, nobody can stop him or restrain him or help him. No one can. And so his existence is, is that he sits among tombs and he howls and he cuts himself. Okay. Now that may sound really weird, and it is, it's pretty weird, right? But there's a lot of us that have some of those things true of us. Nobody can help us. We're stubborn and wild enough in our, in the bondedness of our own arrogant spirit or the feelings of our hurt that we've so thrown off other people that nobody can help us and we're just getting worse and worse and worse. Some of us are literally cutting ourselves because we don't know what to do with emotions that we're feeling and things that we, that are really stirring up inside of us. There's all kinds of parts of this that's true for lots of us, but this guy's got it all, right? And so he comes running to Jesus. Okay, and it says that he, it says that he, he falls on his knees in front of Jesus, right? He yells out like he's not in control of himself at the top of his voice. What do you want from me? Son of the Most High God, in God's name, don't torture me. Or in one of the, one of the um, other Gospels, says, don't torture me before the appropriate time. And then he says, then Jesus says to him, what's your name? And he says, legion, for we're many. Meaning that he, he's either a very powerful or more likely that there's just, there's, it's not just one demon. There's a lot of demons, and there's just one speaking for all those demons. It's a whole horde of them. And because of this, how the story progresses, where these 2,000 pigs run and kill themselves afterwards, that it might be as many as that many, because a legion is like 5,000 in Roman terms, right? That's a lot of demons, right? And I want you to see something here, right? And then it says, he begged him again and again not to send them out of the area. Here's a man who no man can help, who is utterly and completely possessed, who is already walking among the dead, right, and destroying his own body. Here's a man who is so filled with demonic power that he is filled with a legion of devils and evil. And what happens when he encounters Jesus? The answer is he begs. That's the answer. He begs. And he pleads. And he cries. And he, he, he appeals to Jesus' own authority for his well-being. He says, in the name of God, don't torture me. And don't send me out of the area to the abyss. Don't, just please have, he's begging for mercy. The legion of demons who has this guy wrapped up and over. The minute he meets Jesus, he is pleading for his life. Okay? That is who Jesus is. He's a lot of other things too, okay? There may be other things you like about Jesus. Those are probably all true as well, unless they're like, not true, right? <laughs> That's another sermon. But you see, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna love Jesus, if you are gonna love Jesus, and you should, there is nothing more beautiful in existence than God as he's revealed himself in the God-man Jesus Christ, right? It's only, it's only our, cliche, our cliches that tame him and make him seem irrelevant. It's not the real Jesus. If you are going to love Jesus, you have to grow not just to accept, but to love and adore and even worship the fact that he is the incarnate warrior. And that is who you follow. And in some ways, then, as he makes you like himself— he is going to and seeks to and demands to make you a warrior like him so that you can be a son or daughter of God as a peacemaker, 
right? Okay. Because you might be like, okay, Nick, that, I like that, all that stuff, but like, what does it actually have to do with what Sharon read? Like, what does it have to do with putting on the full armor of God? Well, here's why. Because one of the things you'll see over and over and over again in Jesus' ministry, one of the things that you'll see in everybody who knows how to be a warrior properly is fundamental to the character of a warrior. In fact, the thing that might even define them the most is the fact that they know when and how to make a stand. Right? Nobody who won't take a stand is a warrior. You understand that? I remember when I was, when I was younger, I was kind of a small boy, and I got, kind of got bullied a lot. And I'm against bullying. I do feel like, especially for boys, learning how to stand up to a bully is an incredibly important part of their development and their masculinity. So I don't know, maybe we need to have like a fake bullying club where they can learn to do that, but not have any bullying. That would be great. I don't know. We'll have to figure something out. Um, but learning, learning, there was, a, and there was a moment in my life where I was like, look, I'm not going to live this way anymore like a coward. I'm going to stand up to this guy, and if I lose some teeth, I lose some teeth. Like, that's all there is to it. I'm going to lose, but I'm not going to take it anymore, right? And I remember that moment. I remember I became, in, one, in one minute, I became a completely different person, right? And, um, and I've, I've seen that happen in other people when they, when they realize they're just not going to, they're not going to become a brigand, but they're not going to be a coward anymore. What makes for a warrior is a person who knows when to take a stand, and they know who the enemy is, and they don't kill civilians, right? And they don't throw errant punches, they, they, and they, but they always know when to take a stand. And one of the things that this passage talks about is the fact that in order for us to be the body of Christ that Ephesians talks about, and to be filled with the Spirit, and to be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power, fundamental to that is each of us recognizing that we are in a spiritual conflict in which, like Jesus, we have to become spiritual warriors, and that fundamental to that is to realize that we have to be the kind of people who are always in the midst of taking a stand against the real enemy, which is Satan and devils and darkness and hell and sin and death. Okay? And not the people who don't like us and who we have a lot of trouble liking ourselves. Does that make sense? Now, so with that, with, you can see this all through Jesus' ministry. I'm going to keep going because I already talked about some of these, but especially this one. This is the one to especially recognize. That, and, and it's important to recognize that because in Jesus' greatest stand, he dies. Okay, you need to realize that. So taking a stand doesn't always mean winning in the way we'd like to win. You don't have to win. You just have to stand. Do you understand? You have to stay standing till the end. And even when Jesus was knocked off his feet, Spiritually, he always stood. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. Right? Even in the crucifixion, in all of that, however, however he was treated, he was always fighting for the will of God against the will of Satan, not taking personally the people used for evil because that wasn't his job yet. Right? Now, what that means is that if we want to think about what, what God— demands of us as believers and calls us into and has made us for is that he's called us to take a stand. He wants you to be able to stand. And if you read through this passage, there's—he wants you to take a stand. He wants you to be able to make a stand. He wants you to be able to be standing when it's over. And he wants you to know how to stand up and arm yourself for the conflict. The, that, that phrase to stand is used four times in the passage, right? And I'm going to get to those in just a minute. But you need to recognize that there's only one how given right? Because if you go, okay, I'm supposed to take a stand, the question is, how? And there's only one how given 
in this passage, and that is you have to put on the full armor of God, whatever that is. And we're going to talk very specifically about that next week. Next week, I'm going to talk about all the parts and what they mean and how you put them on and how you utilize them. That's going to be next week. It's probably going to be a six-hour sermon, okay? (laughs) Just kidding. That's not true. But listen, none of that makes any difference if you don't, by faith, in a very serious way in your own life right now, either renew or decide that Jesus is a warrior, he stood, you are his son or daughter, you are being taught to stand. There is only one way to stand, and that is to put on and to leave on and to keep on and to utilize on and on the full armor of God. And if you, if you don't believe that, then none of the what they are and how they work is going to matter. None of it's going to matter. Okay? So let's look at the first part of that, which is our spiritual life amounts to taking a stand. There's lots of metaphors you can use for the spiritual life, right? Running a marathon. Being the bride of Christ. Okay, there's, lo- there's lots of different metaphors that can be used, and they're all true. They're all true, and they all get at different things. But in this passage, one of the things the Apostle is showing is that all of the Christian life can also be seen as taking a stand against an enemy. Right? All of it. So there's four stands in this, in this passage. So one is, um, he says, put on the full arm of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Okay? There's a point where you just have to decide, first of all, whether or not you're going to fight. Okay? I don't know how many fights you've been in. I haven't been in a lot of fights. I was, I was pretty good at trying to talk my way out of them. I was—the kind of warrior I was is sometimes referred to as a weasel <laughs> when I was younger. So I haven't been in a lot of fights, okay? But, but one, of the, one of the things fundamental to taking a stand, whether it leads to a fight or not, is you've got to decide you're going to take a stand. One, that there's an enemy. One, that you don't like what's happening and you're not supposed to stand for it. And three, that you're going to stand up and fight. If there needs to be a fight, but you're not going to take it, and you're not going to watch it, and you're not going to let it happen to you, you're going to fight, and you're going to take a stand. You, first of all, one of the first things that happens when you put on the armor of God, when you put on the belt of, you know, when you put on truth, is you're like, wait a second, I'm supposed to fight this. I'm not supposed to go along with this. And you have to take a stand, right? And then secondly, you've got to be able to have the strength to stand. Like once you start a fight, there's—my dad said this thing to me that apparently he learned from generations before him. If you're going to start a fight, you better be able to finish it, right? Like you have to actually do the fighting, right? And then the goal is after you do all the fighting, that at the end you're still standing. You don't necessarily even have to win. Sometimes when you're just making a stand, all you have to do is not lose or not give up. And then lastly, he says— It says in the last verse, he he says, Now, therefore stand, putting on the—and he goes on to talk about what to put on. So what he says is, part of the stand is to stand and arm yourself. That you've got to get out of your chair, realize you're going to be taking a stand, making a stand, and standing at the end of it. Realize you need to be armed, and you just stand up and put the armor on. It's an active action that precedes the fighting. And if you don't do it, then you are not using the one means by which God gives to stand. Which means the standing might not go very well, if you know what I'm saying. Okay, now, 
In order for that to work, one of the things that Jesus is teaching, Jesus always had, and that this passage teaches us, is what's sometimes called conflict realism. That in order to win a fight, you had better know what on earth is happening. It's called conflict realism. Okay, so one is, you have to know who you're fighting. And now you might be like, what? What does that mean? Well, for example, a lot of the, a lot of the military losses in world history ended up happening because the, the aggressor or the defender really didn't know who they were fighting. Does that make sense? So, for example, um, Germany's a big country in Europe. Like, if you look at a map of Europe, Germany's a lot of Europe. And so it's very easy for—it was very easy for the Germans in the turn of the 20th century to think, we're this big country, we have all these people, we're really good at building stuff, we're just going to take over Europe, why not? I mean, we're the best people, right? Well, what, here's, here's what they didn't know. They didn't know their enemies. They didn't have any idea how big America was, right? They just—no idea. There's a story about this uh, guy that was captured in the German army, and they were driving him from New York where they'd flown him in to California. And they weren't quite through Indiana yet. And the guy said, are we in California yet? No idea, right? They had no idea that the British were able to produce more tanks and more planes than them, even while they were bombing them. Turns out, you can turn a wrench faster when people are coming to slaughter you than when you're turning wrenches for the Fuhrer, even if you're a German and good at making things, right? He just had no idea what he's up against. It's, it's like the—not the, uh, Monty Python. It's the, the Princess Bride, right? The, the great fallacy is never get involved in a land war in Asia. Why? There's too much land in Asia. You can't fight a land war in Asia, right? Like, Hitler thought he could take over Russia. That's like thinking you could take over Mars. Like, it's, it's just too much land. And on top of that, he had no idea how many people lived in Russia. Stalin just threw a million people at him at one battle. Right? So in order for anybody to win a fight, you got to know who and what you're fighting. And if you're not realistic about that, you have no idea what you're getting into. You don't know what it's going to take to win. You don't have the mentality to win. You're not preparing yourself to win. You're not going to take your preparations and armament seriously. You're not going to be ready in any meaningful sense of the term. You have to know who and what you're fighting. And what Paul says in here, and he's very careful to be very clear about it. He says, listen, well, we talked about this some last time, but it's very important to get this straight. He says this, Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people you think you're fighting. It isn't. Do you understand? It is not sophisticated to think that your doormate or your professor or your coworker or the other political party you don't like or your neighbor or whoever it is that is giving you problems or whoever has, whoever has hurt you, it is not—you think, you think that it's sophisticated and, and properly secular. I understand that. What the Lord is saying is that, that is not actually sophisticated. That is actually a truncating of reality and a misperception that will ultimately destroy you because you don't really know what you're fighting. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And then he says this, and I want you to pay attention to the language. Listen carefully to how many times the word against is used. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Why do you think he uses the word against four times? You understand? Did you miss that last time you read it? Did you pick that up? Against, 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 against. And it's like, it's all kinds of people. Rulers and authorities are by definition kings and princes, and people who have the right to tell lots of people to fight. So it's not like, it's not like a bar—you're not in a bar fight, okay? It's not like, oh yeah, there's this devil that's trying to get me. No! No, 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 no. 
there's an entire superstructure of darkness. Like, there's rulers and authorities, and they are not good. They are the spiritual forces of darkness. Like, take all that is darkness, personify them in spiritual forces, all that it would take, and that's who you are fighting. It is not simple. It's not weak. It's not irrelevant. It is the fundamental conflict of a life connected to the spiritual reality that exists in creation. And you have to have that awareness, right? And then um, one of the metaphors that's used is the flaming arrows of the evil one. One of the, um, one of the ways in which people thought it was kind of a cheap way to die in ancient warfare was to get hit by an arrow. Because it doesn't take a lot of skill to shoot an arrow up in the air, right? In fact, the Roman Catholic Church, in one of their more interesting pronouncements, outlawed crossbows in Europe for like 500 years, right? Because just really to save a lot of people's lives was the point of it. Because like, it, ta- it took years to become a knight, and then the knights would fight each other, and the knights would kill each other, but they actually mostly wanted to fight, and it, it kept the peasants out of it. But like, if you let anybody use a crossbow, man, can you imagine what the casualty rates would be? Because you can teach anybody to use a crossbow. Any idiot can point a stick and pull a trigger at a big mass of people, right? And so they outlawed them because it was considered cheap and like inappropriate and just kind of wrong. Like, if you're going to kill somebody, learn how to use a sword. You know what I mean? That was— it's a papal edict, right? It's a good one. So, <clears throat> but that—see, that is the metaphor used for the attack of the evil one on us. It's not frontal warfare. He doesn't play fair. He doesn't fight fair. Listen, if you're upset because you feel like things attack you in your life and like things happen to you and have happened to you and just, just the difficulties that you have, you just feel like there's this—the spiritual conflict just isn't fair. It's not! It's not fair! There's nothing honorable about your enemy. There's no rules. He doesn't obey any rules. And if you don't realize that, you're going to be like, I don't need this shield. We're all going to fight fair with swords. I'll just go out like this. And then you're going to go out into a rain of flying sticks with points. Right? And then in, in verse 13, he calls it the day of evil, meaning the big fight. That sometimes it's not just arrows or schemes. Sometimes it is just an all-out, everything-you've-got, face-to-face, sword-to-sword fight. And at that moment is the moment where you most need the full armor of God to absolutely stand. Does that make sense? And you have to keep that in mind as you prepare to make a stand. When you make a stand, when you get ready to fight a stand, when you say, I'm going to do whatever is necessary to be standing in the end, you better realize what you're doing. Do you understand? All right. You can see this in Jesus. Jesus had real conflict realism. He knew he was fighting a devil, not men. He expected deceptive, non-direct warfare that entangled civilians. Right? Because when you fight the devil, who are you going to be fighting the devil in? Like, the de- you're not going to fight the devil. Like, there's all these stories about, like, Martin Luther throwing his inkwell at the devil in Warburg Castle when he's trying to translate the Bible. Right? And there's, like, you can go there today, and, like, there's, like, an ink stain over by this furnace. And they're like, that's where— you know, Luther threw his inkwell at the devil. And I'm not saying Luther didn't throw his inkwell at the devil. I'm just saying it probably didn't hurt him. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, there are hagiographic stories, like stories of the saints literally warring with devils. But like, that's, that's not how it actually works. How it actually works is, is that um, there are schemes through which people are influenced to do what they should never do. And so then they become, like, there is no battle in which Satan doesn't use a human shield. Do you realize that? And most of us, because we live by the flesh and not by the spirit, we don't realize we're in this conflict. Who do we shoot at? Who do you shoot at? Say it out loud. Be honest. Say it out loud. You shoot at the? 
human shield. That's what you do. That's what I do. That's what you do too. You shoot at the human shield. The one who Jesus came to extricate. Jesus came to take that human shield and to pull them away from the demonic terrorists so that he can kill the demonic terrorist and save the human shield. That's the work Jesus does. What we do when we live by the flesh, and we don't realize that, is we shoot the human shield. And we fight the human shield. And we kill the human shield. And then we think we've won. When we're spiritual murderers. And you, you'll never, ever, 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 Stop shooting the human shields until you believe that there's another enemy behind them. You won't. You're not psychologically capable of it. Even if, okay, this is not the case, but even if it was the case that there was no God, you would need to create a belief in devils just to not kill your neighbor. Do you understand? Because you need an enemy that's not the person if you're going to live redemptively. The good—I don't want to say it's the good news that there's devils, but the, the good news overall is, is that God does exist, and he is creating redemption, and you do have a real enemy, and it isn't your neighbor. That actually is really true. It's not a fantasy or a falsehood you'd have to make up to not kill your neighbor. Right? we got to keep moving. And he expected a long and terrible fight. The same thing is true for us. We need to know who we're fighting. We need to expect deceptive, non-direct warfare that entangles civilians. And we need to expect a long and terrible conflict that will exist the duration of our lives, right? Now, we should do this by putting on the full armor of God, right? I've got to do this part rather quickly. So, we can only make a stand with the full armor of God. So, if you look at the verse, this is what you see. Look, it says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So how do you do that? Well, there's only one way. Put on the full armor of God. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. And notice the so that's. This is the reason why you have to put on the full armor of God. So that you can take your stand. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. So that when the day of evil comes, you can make your stand. And after everything happens, you fought everything to be standing in the end. Therefore, stand, meaning then put on the full armor of God. Do you see the logic here? You can only make a stand if you put on the full armor of God. Now, it's important to recognize, because it's easy to be like, look. Years ago, there was this movie called Black Hawk Down. Anybody see that movie? Black Hawk Down. It's, it's, it's about the, um, this, like, military debacle that happened in Mogadishu. Um, and one of, the, one of the scenes in it, there's a guy who's going in, and they're deciding how much of their armor to wear. And of course, this is Somalia. It's pretty hot out. And one of the things that all of the American infantry wore at that time, and they may, maybe they still do, was a 14-pound metal plate on, the, on their back. And it was really heavy, but it would repel everything but direct rifle fire. Okay? And this guy said, I'm going to wear my front one, but I'm not going to wear my back one because I'm not going to be running away. Right? And so he left it behind, and he just didn't wear it. And later in the movie, he gets shot in the back by somebody up on a building when he's moving forward. He's not running away, but he didn't understand the battle he was going to be in, and so he didn't wear the full armor. And it turned out the piece of armor he didn't wear was exactly the one he needed to save his life. Right? And so God gives us this full arrayed armor, and he tells us to put it on, and there's a couple things we need to recognize in thankfulness. The first is, he did not have to do this. God did not have to do this. He could have said to you, look, you picked Satan. You, you humans decided to let him into your lives. 
You wanted to do what he said. Now you deal with him. Could have done that. Could have easily have done that. And he would have been right to do it from a certain perspective of justice. And he didn't do it. And he didn't just, he didn't just die so that we had the right to such an armor, but in his death, he forged the armor. It is what he purchased for you in his death that clarified the truth and that made possible God giving you Christ's righteousness and that made it possible that you could receive the sword of the Spirit and that you could have the Word of God and that you could be equipped to travel to bring the Word of God to others. All these parts of the armor of God. It was forged by the death and resurrection of Jesus for you and you don't deserve it and I don't deserve it. And he could have told you to fight for yourself, and he didn't do that, right? The other alternative is for you to just not believe and decide you're just going to fight for yourself. And that's not tactically wise. I don't have time to say more about that right now. Okay, so there's two ways, essentially two ways to win a fight, right? This is why you shouldn't do that, what I just said. Um, there's two ways you would fight. One is to just be more tenacious and to be a better fighter and to outfight the person you're fighting. And that's not going to work. Okay, I know it feels romantic. I know you want to you win the boxing match of your life. Um, you know, but you're boxing Colossus from the X-Men. Like, it's not going to work. Do you understand? Like, it's, you don't have the right kind of tools, right? The other way to win a fight is to be super- superiorly equipped. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, oftentimes, like in movies and stuff— They'll, they'll have war movies with people fighting, and it'll look like everybody's pretty much equally equipped, right? Unless they're fighting Batman. And so the, the people who win are like heroic. You know, like somebody gives this incredible speech, you know, like, you know, we're going to fight the English and, you know, like whatever. They're, they give this like big speech, and then they go out and fight, and the people who got more excited win, okay? That's, what, that's the way movies are, right? That's absolutely not the way history has gone. Do you understand? In almost every military conflict in the history of the world, the more, the better equipped army with the, the better functioning tactics wins basically every single time. One of, the, one of the only times that did not happen was in the American Revolution. But even in the American Revolution, there were huge logistical problems getting stuff here from England. There were all kinds of issues of like strange kinds of warfare and like all kinds of other reasons other than just the amount of guns by which the Americans won. And God helping with the fog in um, the Battle of Brooklyn, which was great. Thank you for that. The point is, is that you, you can literally go from the most ancient battles all the way to, the, to like the F-22 right now. And in like basically every single case, the people who win the fight are the people with the better arms and the better tactics. It's not who wins. That's why like there's no race of people who always wins, Right? Like, think about the Crusades, right? The, the era before the Crusades. Muslim armies won, like, basically every single battle for 300 years. And then all of a sudden, Europeans were like, let's do a crusade! And they take over Jerusalem. How did that happen? It wasn't because Europeans, like, like ate more beef and, like, got stronger. There was a change in armaments. What happened was Muslim armies had much better armaments for taking over North Africa and southern Spain. They, 
their method of like fighting and then hiding and using camels and horses and using the, the bows that they used and all that was massively superior to Byzantine warfare at the time. And then they got to the Franks, and the Franks fought completely different in thicker mail that repelled their arrows. They had full infantry lines with long swords, and they just couldn't fight them. And the Franks won there, and they won in Sicily, and all of a sudden the Europeans are like, we can beat these guys. And then the Muslim armada that was coming to destroy Europe, they met a bunch of Byzantine ships that had Greek fire. Do you know what that is? It's like this like oily stuff that you like catches your boat on fire and you can't put it out. And they literally incinerated two full Islamic armadas that were being sailed by Venetian Italians, right? Sank both armadas. That's when the Europeans were like, we should go fight these guys, right? And then they got their butts kicked later by Saladin, again because of tactics and armaments relative to the battle. Listen, there's two ways to win a fight, and you don't want to win. You don't want to win the boxing way. You don't want to win the boxing way. You're not going to win the boxing way. The way all fights are won, and the reason why this metaphor is used, and the reason you have to win the spiritual conflict of your life by following Jesus, the incarnate warrior, is you need to realize that you were made to take a stand. You weren't made to be a spiritual coward. You were made to face your real enemy. You were called to take a stand in places of spiritual loss and oppression and injustice, and in, and in physical situations sometimes of oppression and injustice. You were called to be the kind of person, however, who didn't shoot the human shield, but who understood who the real enemy is, and to be the kind of person who not only knows when to pick a fight, but knows spiritually how to fight a fight, and to knows how to be standing at the end of the fight, because you've chosen and decided to put on the divine armaments given for the fight of your life. And I want you to hear this lastly. You will never be a peacemaker until you accept that. You can, you can never be a blessed peacemaker who's called the son and daughter of God if you don't understand the conflict, the pain of which through we make peace. You will think you're a peacemaker and you'll be shooting human civilians and you'll be making problems in war. Telling yourself that you're a good person who makes peace. Let's pray. Father, as we... Um, Get ready, ready to celebrate the lives of some of the human shields you have pulled away from the dominion of darkness and you have put your name on and you are making them your own warriors for peace. These people that are going to be baptized, we pray that you would help us to become the sort of people that recognize the real conflict that we're in. They recognize what you've really called us to and that, we, that we'll grapple today permanently with that you have made us, that our spiritual life is, is in some ways that you've called us to make a stand. And we pray that in the same power by which you tamed the legion in the demoniac, you would equip us and empower us to be warrior peacemakers in the world that you are working to redeem. We pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen.